0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 76. to The Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we are digging into the Wild Lens archives to bring you an interview with one of the central figures in the historic recovery of the California condor. Lloyd Kiff was the coordinator of the condor recovery team during one of the most critical time periods of the species' recovery. From 1986 through 1993, he oversaw both the decision to bring the last wild condors into captivity, as well as the very first reintroductions of California condors back into the wild, which happened in 1992. I interviewed Lloyd back in 2011 for my first documentary film, Scavenger Hunt, which was about California condor conservation and the issue of lead poisoning from spent ammunition. Lloyd and I had a fascinating conversation, but unfortunately we couldn't find a place for any of this interview footage in the final film. I was recently delving into our condor archive because of a footage request and came across this interview. I started listening and couldn't stop. I I had forgotten what a great conversation Lloyd and I had had um, and how insightful Lloyd's perspective is on the issue of condo recovery. So I did some editing, prepared the audio from this interview to release on today's show. I hope that everybody enjoys listening to this archival interview with Lloyd Kiff as much as I did.
1: I'm Lloyd Kiff and I'm coordinator of the Global Raptor Information Network, which is a web-based project to bring all the raptor researchers of the world together.
2: When did you first get involved in the uh, condor recovery program?
1: I, I must have gotten involved in the Asheville program in the early, early 70s, uh, because I was interested in eggshell thinning. I was in charge of the biggest egg collection in the world. And so uh, most of the people who were doing research on eggshell thinning were coming through our museum, which was in LA. And so uh, Sandy Wilbur, who was the Fish and Wildlife Service biologist at the time, uh, knew of some eggshell fragments that Fred Sibley had collected in the SESPI in the 60s. And there were a lot of nest failures then. So Sandy had the idea that uh, we should measure those and compare them to the historical aches. And so uh, he contacted me. And so that brought me in formally. However, I saw my first condor in 1965. And it was pointed out to me by my mom, who was a birder. And uh, I was a grad student at UCLA. And so I took my folks up to the Sespe and with Gary Stiles the guy that wrote the field guide, the Costa Rican birds, mm-hmm. he was my office partner, and so nice. we saw our first Condor that year.
2: Nice. So. What was that like? Was it, do you have a memory of
1: Oh, yeah, it was a big deal. Costa I was partly i was partly in a lifelister mode at the oh, time, right. and so that was a big impression. Hey, I finally got my Condor, man. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was really, they're incredible in flight, they just take your breath. And so. But we were already right out in the sesame sanctuary. Mm-hmm. so. Uh, this was no, uh, back then that's where you, what you had to do to be sure to see one.
2: How did your role in the recovery
1: I was uh, ghostwriting a book for a guy named Ed Harrison, a fellow I worked for. And Ed had been very active with Carl Coford, who was the guy who did the monumental study of condors in the 1940s. And so Ed was a photographer, an amateur. And so he went out with Coford on many of his trips and filmed condors. And so Ed had, at the time, even by the 60s, he had the only real condor film around. And the footage had been used many times for many purposes, but so he thought he could spring a book deal out of it, and so it was intended to be a collaboration. Uh, my name would not have been disguised at all. I would have gotten rewarded for it, but I had to write it from the ground up. So I got immersed in the condor literature, and then the fellows who were working on condors, formerly uh, John Borneman for the Audubon Society, Dean Carrier for the Forest Service, and Sandy for the Fish and Wildlife Service, they were very open to. Uh, uh, working with me or helping me get introduced to the literature and so yeah. forth. So anyway, that's that's how I got started. And then by the, the late uh, 1970s, we were completing this eggshell paper, and by then I started going to all the recovery team meetings. And the recovery team was quite small back in the 70s, but eventually I got added to the team because I'd become sort of an ex officio member, I always showed up. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably by 1980, I was on the recovery team, I can't remember this year. But uh, it it was was incremental and if you hang around long enough they give you something to do.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So what role did you play during the 80s?
1: Well during the 80s I was a member of the recovery team and uh, uh, up in that particular team that uh, incarnation lasted from about 1980 to 1985 and we did a revision of the kind of recovery plan and Dave Harlow of the Fish and Wildlife Service was the team leader then. And mm-hmm. so I was active at that level. And then also I was working a lot with Noel Snyder on a bunch of different things and going out in the field with him. Mm-hmm. And we were collecting shell fragments to analyze from all the known historical iris. And I think Noel did get into every known iris to sift the, the, the detritus right. for A shells. And I got into a lot of them with me. I didn't go on every trip. And then uh, that team was disbanded in 85 because uh, uh, it couldn't come to any agreement as to whether we should bring all the birds in or not. And it was just split right down the middle between the the people affiliated with Audubon and the people affiliated with the Fish and Wildlife Service. And so uh, then in 86, the team was reconstituted and uh, I was chosen as team leader and and was selected out of the original group to be back on the team picked two or three of us to continue. And I've always felt that they chose me because I know the most jokes. Mm -hmm. And also, I didn't work for any agency or zoo. And -hmm. so I had a pretty pretty independent position, and I paid my own way to everything. So uh, I wasn't beholden to anyone, at least in a financial sense. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, I was team leader from 86 to 93.
2: When did this debate start over... uh whether or
1: not to bring the birds into captivity? Uh, The debate over captive breeding started in the early 50s. And uh, the schism then was between Jean Delacour, who was uh, the famous French aviculturist who really was one of the first people to start breeding species in captivity for endangered species to save them. Mm -hmm. And he had this idea. He wasn't unique, but he had a pretty unique situation at his uh, chateau in Normandy. And uh, Jean later... Came to the US a lot and became the director of, uh, among other things, the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History. Mm -hmm. And he was very influential worldwide in ornithological circles. He was one of the founders of the International Council for Bird Preservation, this sort of thing. And so he knew the people at the San Diego Zoo intimately because uh, the zoo was led by a woman named Belle Benchley who was the director and she had a guy on the staff a guy named Lou Walker who was uh, sort of one of these uh, uh, not formally educated I think but a, a guy who uh, knew a lot about wildlife and especially birds of prey and so they wanted to, uh, they had gotten Andean condors to breed in their facility and so they wanted to capture California condors to uh, as, you know it's just with the department, doing all those things we're doing now they were opposed by Carl Coford the fellow who had done the study uh, out of UC Berkeley in the early forties, because he was just philosophically against having the bird in captivity. And he told me, I knew Carl, and he told me that he would rather the last one die than ever be in captivity. So he had that position and he influenced Alden Miller, his major professor at Berkeley, uh, who was a giant in ornithology, uh, to come out against this. And I just Ran across and working in our library just now, I ran across Miller's article, uh, The Case Against Trapping the California Condor, and he wrote this in Audubon in the early 50s. Yeah. Uh, they persuaded uh, the Cooper Society, the Cooper Ornithological Society, it's the main professional group on birds in the West, mm-hmm. and they persuaded the Cooper Society to come out against it. Uh, before they did this, uh, the Department of Fish and Game of California had issued a permit for Lou Walker to trap the birds. And uh, so he had some support. Delacour was not the only one. He brought along a bunch of wealthy businessmen, amateur ornithologists, including Ed Harrison, mm-hmm. the guy who'd gone out with Covert. And so um, so it was really a schism within several groups. and uh, But I think it just reflected existing philosophies, right. a clash of existing philosophies, and some people favor hands-on management, the wild things, and some people don't. Huh. Some.
2: So how did that evolve from, because I mean, most people, mm-hmm. uh, most people don't know that this debate started in the 50s. I mean, most people know mm-hmm. nothing about like that bit of history. You just told me most people think, you know, that this was something that was going on only in the 80s. I mean, how did, what happened in that in-between period? How was that revived?
1: Uh, At the time in the early 50s, when they were having the debate, uh, the anti-trappers, the anti-captive bird groups won, and they prevailed. And so that was the end of it for the next, uh, nearly the next 30 years. But by the uh, mid-70s, there was just general acceptance of the fact that condor was going to go extinct. I was one of these people that thought, okay, it's just going to go steadily downhill. Sandy Wilbur... Uh, probably felt this way too. But he came up with a plan which was based in, in part on what Fred Sibley had suggested, that is radio tracking birds and uh, also uh, bring birds into captivity and breeding them. And Fred thought this in the 60s. And Fred didn't stick with the program because he went on to do other things, but he, he was very present. He had some really good ideas. And Sandy uh, subscribed to those and came up with ideas of his own. And he put together a very good management proposal in about the mid-70s. And the recovery team, uh, there were five members then, but they endorsed this idea of doing these two hands-on techniques, following the birds in the wild mm-hmm. with uh, some tracking device mm-hmm. and then uh, bringing some birds into captivity and breeding them. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of uh, feeling in the ornithological community, and it's now or never. And so uh, at a meeting uh, put together by Ottoman National Ottoman Society in California, in Oakland, there was a a symposium about the California Condor in the late 70s. And there it was decided informally by Dick Plunkett, who was the vice president of National Ottoman, to put together, uh, along with other people at the symposium, to put together a panel that was kind of loaded heavily with can't be breeding proponents. But uh, people in National Academy of Science members and people, very eminent people, zoo directors and so forth, to discuss and meet and meet and discuss the fate of the condor. And so they did this under the direction of um, the chairmanship of Bob Rickliffs, who's a very prominent ecologist. And so uh, there were as I recall, maybe 10 people on this panel, and they produced a report. They were supported by Audubon and the American Ornithologists Union. Mm. And uh, the, the outcome was pretty predestined uh, based on the choice of people to serve on the panel. Yeah. But they were very diligent about their work, and they came out with a, a report that uh, recommended that we take these steps. And so then it was a matter of going before the California Fish and Game Commission and getting permission to do it. Uh, the Ottoman brought on Noel Snyder. I'm sorry, brought on John Ogden, who is a very good researcher from Florida, to head their program. And the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service moved Noel Snyder out from uh, Puerto Rico, where he'd been working as the Puerto Rican parent, to head their program. And so the program was actually uh, the framework, uh, personnel framework, was established in about 1980. But then they had to go, you know. Uh, uh, flight before the Fashion Game Commission at several hearings to actually get permission to do these things. Mm-hmm. There was tremendous opposition from the Sierra Club, uh, from Friends of the Earth, and um, some splinter groups and, and the people that generally show up to hearings like that to to be heard, whether <laughs> they're reasonable or not. And then a lot of support. By then, the academic community had come around. and So there, were, uh, there was testimony from several prominent an academic ornithologist, an mm. so uh, that's how it mm. came together.
2: It's it's fascinating to me that uh, I mean these these groups that that uh, opposed um, pulling the last uh, I mean opposed any you know any of this stuff, mm-hmm. like the stuff like radio telemetry or you know um, pulling birds into captivity um, Sierra Club Friends of the Earth I mean what were what these guys saying at meetings I mean.
1: The people, um, one of the, the cast of the opponents of hands-on management was, quote, let them die with dignity. And I always pointed out that this is a cop-out because these, this bird is on its knees because of human impacts and uh, is not a Pleistocene relic. It's doing just fine. I mean, there were lots of them in the Pleistocene, apparently, but, uh, you know, there were lots of them pre- prehistorically, too, long after the Pleistocene. So they, um, these are people who just have that philosophy. And they, uh, the first argument, in back in the 50s, the argument was, well, you can't trap these birds. They're too wary and too wily. And then the argument was, well, if you trap them, it'll traumatize them and they won't do well. They'll die out of the shock. And then it was said, well, you can keep them in captivity, but you can't. And it's had been done a lot, of course, but you can't get them to breed. And this was total Totally fallacious because Andean condors were bred as early as 1842 in the London Zoo. They'd been bred on every continent by the time we were in, in zoo collections when we were starting to have this argument about the California condors. So we had a good track record with the Andean condors. We knew it was a kind of a shoe in. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was the one thing we were all sure about that we could breed them. But then it was argued, well, you can breed them, but the, you'll just have uh, feathered pigs, and you know, as one group called them. Um, and you know, when you release them, they'll just be totally dependent on people; they'll just be domesticated. But uh, you know, that's not the case, and we didn't think that would be the case. But uh, there was a lot of unease about bringing them all in, of course, and that didn't happen really till the till the the last half of the eighties. Yeah, um,
2: it's just it's yeah. I mean, it's I mean, you know, part of it is obviously, you know. Looking at this from the perspective we're at now, where it's mm. really succeeded, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. those perspectives just seem totally
1: crazy. In hindsight, it, it it seems like you know, like what were these people thinking? And a lot of them would come around by now. But it wasn't like that at the time because we were going into unknown territory. Mm. But as the uh, when the recovery team could not come to any conclusion uh, or unanimity on the matter of bringing the birds in than it was allowed to atrophy. And there was a fellow named Dick Smith who was a deputy director, I believe, of the Fish and Wildlife Service who was based in Washington. And Dick Smith was sort of the Bob Lutz of uh, of uh, the conservation world. And he was very dominant and pretty arrogant and self-assured. And so he just said, you know, we're going to bring him in. And uh, there was a big battle with Audubon because Audubon wanted um, the Fish and Wildlife Service or some federal agency to purchase a particular ranch. It was called the Hudson Ranch where condors by then were known to congregate and feed. And, um, and they had had a very active feeding program, a supplemental feeding program for condors there. And some of the birds had been trapped there. And so uh, they wanted that ranch to be purchased. And so they sued the feds over this to block the, bring all the birds in. And they lost the suit. But uh, the, as it turned out later, the federal government did acquire that ranch. So right. It's a nice, uh, it's now Bitter Creek National Wildlife right. Refuge, and so right. it's a nice place for condors, and it's good to have some of that kind of habitat preserved down yeah. there.
2: Yeah, so. I'm fascinated by Carl Cofer, because, mm-hmm. you know, you have this guy who, you know, did the very first, you know, sort of uh, extensive research on the species, <laughs> and... And and did a lot of uh, um, very hands-on stuff, you know, going into nests and Mm -hmm. handling chicks. Um, And then it it seems, and you know, I mean, you probably know way more about this this history than I do. But you know, based on sort of what I've read, it seems like he did this very hands-on research, got to know the birds, and must have understood that their there was a sort of, uh, you know, condors have a sort of lack of um, fear in general of people, you know. It it seems like, and anyway, I mean, it it seems like after his research, like, he sort of, his perspectives sort of turned 180 degrees, um, and his recommendations for conservation of the species were let's create this sanctuary and not let people get anywhere near them.
1: I think it's very true that Carl, uh, his attitude evolved uh, partly as a result of his own work and his own failures and his own experiences. And at the outset, he went in to do conventional things. Uh, You know, uh, he was an Extremely careful observer. No one's come close to doing what he did in the field as far as condors go. I mean, people chip away at little areas. We know a little bit more about courtship or this or that than than he recorded. But uh, as far as a single study, it's still unmatched. And at the outset, because he was just following the trail of everyone else, uh, he and this guy, Ed Harrison, banded the nestlings. Well, we now know that condors and other vultures of the New World engage in urohydrosis, which is a funny term to mean that they crap on their feet and legs to promote cooling. Uh, the problem is the fecal matter builds up around bands. And so that's very deleterious to birds and people don't ban turkey busters for that reason. They didn't know that. And they went to, you know, one of the aircraft factories in middle world war two, you know, and had them make the bands and they were very careful about this. Also, um, in the handling of one bird, the bird they named Herkimer, they named all the birds, and, and this was funny names like that. Uh, when they lured the bird, or when they captured the bird in the nest, uh, they evidently broke its wing. And so that, uh, Cofer never really publicized that much, but Fred Sibley went years later, they got the, found the carcass at the dead bird at the bottom of the cliff later on. And um, Fred found that it did have a fracture in its wing. And in Cofred's notes, and Ed Harrison was there, he commented to me too that the, the bird was, uh, seemed to be hurt when uh, uh, it was released. And so these experiences, along with the impact of photographers, uh, which Cofred really feared, uh, th- these sort of traumatized uh, Cofred about having people near the nest. He knew the condors are unwary at the nest. Uh, we knew this from the early study by Finley and Bowman at the turn of the century in Eaton Canyon, just outside of Pasadena. Mm-hmm. And these guys, actually one of the adults at that nest, pulled a glove off the photographer's hand. And, and you know, the condors just don't get it. Mm-hmm. And so Koford felt, and I agree with him, you cannot have... Everybody just trooping up to the nest because the birds aren't equipped to handle them. Mm-hmm. And so bad things happen. Out of uh, I've done an inventory, along with Sandy Wilbur, of the condor eggs that were collected, and I, I think my inventory is up to over, all oh, maybe 70 eggs, something like that in history, mm-hmm. were collected by egg collectors or salvage. But I think four of those were broken in the nest by the condors. And these were probably by people startling condors off the eggs, or one bird kicked an egg out of the nest. Mm-hmm. And this nearly happened with some of the recent birds, mm-hmm. and so it it what, argument was sound, but um, it, the idea he extended it to researchers, and researchers take a few more precautions and are a little bit more sophisticated about uh, the tolerance of the birds mm-hmm. and so that was a pity because when you have this complete uh, curtain a shroud around the bird, you know you can't manage it, and if you can't manage it, you're going to lose this species mm-hmm.
2: so. yeah, that's kind of. You know, my perception of it is, you know, you've got this great study that mm-hmm. was done, and then a, as a result of that study, you have restriction from doing any further studies until you have until you're at this situation where, you're on the verge of extinction.
1: Yeah, Carl, uh, Carl's ideas for further studies were, were interesting, and I think all worthwhile. uh, but he didn't like the idea of people doing nesting studies. Uh, one of his ideas was to study the impact, then at least, of uh, golden eagle dominance at carcasses. Because uh, in his experience, golden eagles were almost invariably uh, dominant. Over condors. And when they got down to only two or three individuals at a carcass, um, or when he found that situation, the eagles would keep the birds off the carcass. And so he felt like there were too many golden eagles in the San Joaquin Valley around mm-hmm. the periphery to yeah, for the go to the condors. So. Mm-hmm. But um, he, he was pretty dead set against uh, doing what we regard as routine research now. Mm-hmm. And so it was really fun for everybody in the 80s to actually sit at a safe distance. Mm-hmm. And, and watch condors at nest and to monitor these things. We, we found a lot out. And not Lloyd. I went and did some of this. But uh, Noel's group did this particularly. Mm-hmm. And then John Ogden's group uh, worked on the radio telemetry stuff and habitat protection. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was, uh, other than the fact that no one could get along with each other, <laughs> it was a really good period. A lot, we found yeah. a lot about condors that yeah. we didn't know.
2: And, I mean, I've actually read, you know, uh, as I'm sure you have, that the, uh, the Sierra Club publication that they put out in the 80s that has all the interviews, and there's this interview, long interview with Carl with Cofer just talking about how, you know, how difficult it would be, like how impossible it would be to breed condors in captivity and all this stuff. And, you know, the Sierra Club sort of presents it as, you know, this is the top researcher on mm-hmm. California condors and he says it's impossible to bring condors into captivity. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I mean, even even knowing what you just said mm-hmm. about Covert's perspective, it still seems a bit crazy. Well,
1: Covert had a disproportionate influence on attitudes because he was at Berkeley. He wasn't really um, a full-on faculty member. He was a field researcher, but he was a research associate and had his office there, but he was in the field as much as possible. And he would never, he would not have been a good Instructor or teacher, or lecturer. I mean, that was not his nature. But he influenced Miller, uh, who was absolutely dominant. Uh, everybody came from Alden Miller after Grinnell, uh, who was his major professor. So all the important ornithologists, for the mo- well, for the most part, on the West Coast. And in the West came from, through Aldo Miller's mm-hmm. operation there. One of them was Frank Patelka, who was an extremely smart guy and um, was very influential in conservation and uh, avian biology. And they, in turn, influenced the people at Point Reyes, for example, the, the Sierra Club people in that area. They, uh, a Starker Leopold, the son of Aldo Leopold, was on that staff, too. And, of course, he went with Coffert's line because these gentlemen felt like, OK, Carl knows the condor. And so they they probably crossed the line from good science to uh, uh sort of philosophy, and went against their own tenets in many cases, certainly starker leopold and but Carl because he influenced those men he then they cast the net more widely and influenced people like paul Ehrlich and Here we had Paul Ehrlich, who has uh, been a wonderful addition to the American scene and made great contributions. Uh, going around saying, let the condors die with dignity. Well, this was nonsense for a, a serious scientist. You dig a little deeper, please. You know This is not that simple. Uh, before I forget though, my, I think my most important role, uh, most important contribution, or the thing I sat in on that was the most significant was I signed the recommendation to bring in the last bird. I signed the recommendation to put out the first bird. At the time, it was very traumatic. Um, there was so much public outcry. Uh, There was so much caution on our part. Uh, But we had to go through it. We believed in this, but you know, like, wow, what if things go wrong? Where are we? And so, um, that's why I'm emotional about it. We got through it. But I would like for you to tape me telling you this without tearing up because uh, it'll be more effective if you use that and I I don't want to I screw up by uh, being emotional in this thing. But uh, I at the first recovery meeting where I was team leader, the regional director came from Portland. And he was essentially in charge of the condor program. He attended the meeting because the Fish and Wildlife Service knew there had been so many perturbations with condors in the press and that it was a very ticklish And if things went wrong, it could go wrong for the whole agency and for the whole endangered species program. Mm -hmm. So uh, we had on the team, John Ogden, who had been the Ottoman in charge of Ottomans field effort. And John was a very good guy, very good to work with. And and he was really not that involved in Audubon's suit against bringing all the birds in. And by then he was on board with it. And so um, at that meeting, among other things, we made the recommendation to bring all the birds in, and um, that was the first recommendation of our recovery team. But we also, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service, agreed to purchase Hudson Ranch.
2: When you guys made that decision, how many birds were left in the wild?
1: When we had the last bird came in, AC9, in 1987, uh, there were 27 birds in the global population. The low point of the population was probably in 1981-82 when there were 21 or 22 birds. And this was based on a, a very interesting photographic uh, survey of birds, their molt patterns and their the, how many flight feathers each bird had. You could in, in, identify each bird by their photographs. And so Noel Snyder and Eric Johnson, a fellow at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, put that study together and we all participated. Everybody said, even if you just have a 50 millimeter lens and get a, the shadow of a silhouette of a condor, we can still use it. So we all did that and they spread the photos out and came up with 21 or 22 birds. There was one in captivity. It had been in captivity since 1979 and it was kind of in the, well, they claimed it wasn't a bird abandoned by his parents, but condors are not apt to abandon a young bird until somebody shoots them down. But anyway, uh, we, when we brought all these, um, you know, that last bird in, um, up, the problem was that uh, in the winter of 84 and 85, we expected, you know, that we, we thought we had four pairs for sure and maybe five pairs breeding in the wild. Well, all hell broke we, loose. We lost uh, uh, out of the 15 birds. Uh, thought to be in the wild, we lost six of them. But they just happened to break up all the pairs. And so we had no breeding pairs all of a sudden. And so then the nine birds went down to six. And at that point, then, um, you know, the, we were pulling out the stops, bring them all in. And then they started bringing them in incrementally. We got down to the last three, and then all of a sudden, the Ottoman people on the ground dug in their heels. And so it was a little difficult because they, they worked against us. And uh, we could have lost a, an important bird or two there. And I'm, I'm still pretty unhappy with Ottoman about that. Ottoman, like everybody, fishing game, for California, Fish and Wildlife Service, almost all of the significant players have been heroes and goats or villains at particular times in their history. And Ottoman especially. Ottoman's had some proud moments as a condor Ottoman has really been underfoot a lot of the time. And I think on balance, I can't accept Ottomans claim that they saved the Condor. I mean, they, the best they can say here for the last 20 or 30 years is they didn't get in the way. (laughs) But uh, they were really obnoxious in many times. They had proud moments with John Borneman, the Audubon warden, and they put John out there in the mid 60s before the federal government ever had anyone on the ground. And uh, that was a good thing to do. Uh, They supported covert and that was really a good thing to do, but um, they, at the same time they came out against captive breeding uh, they sponsored the McMillan survey in the early 60s that perpetuated all of comforts uh, hang-ups mm-hmm. and because the people that did that shared them and it wasn't a particularly sophisticated sophisticated survey right. and so uh it held things back quite a while so same same efficient game they came through in the end yeah. Special life Service certainly came through in the end. But, uh, and I think all of us as individuals, I opposed captive breeding when I first got around condors. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was dumb.
2: So what changed your mind?
1: My boss, Ed Harrison. So, because Ed was strongly influenced by Delacour. And I was too. I knew Sean Delacour. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there was a fellow named Jerry Verner who did. worked for the Forest Service. And he was on most of the recovery teams up until the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And um, Jerry... I did a demographic analysis of the condor population that was published in 1978 by the Forest Service. Mm -hmm. And that was very compelling to many of us that, uh, you know, hey, uh, we can't make it without captive breeding because these things, uh, although the adults have pretty good survival in a real situation. They don't breed fast enough right. to bring the population back up. They're too low. There's, right. uh, there's not enough uh, genotypes there to bring this off. Right. And so uh, I think Jerry, for me, that was the thing. His report really uh, made a, a crusader out of me. Mm-hmm. And so there was never any doubt among the members of this panel that the EOU put together and Ottoman put together under Brickless. Uh, there was a consensus on the need for captive breeding from the outset. Mm-hmm. But, and I and a good part of it is probably Jerry's analysis.
2: So, so I'm wondering what it was like when you realized that okay, there's only 21 birds in the mm-hmm. wild. Was that what you expected? Was that? Uh...
1: I can't recall. <laughs> I mean, I I can't. Re- what I mean is, I can't recall whether um, we had any. Um, I mean, what, was, what was your reaction to that? A, prior assumption, yeah. our a priori assumptions yeah. about how many birds there were. We knew there were probably weren't more than 30, and uh, we thought there were probably more than 15 or whatever. But I don't think there was any. It was pretty sobering at the time to find out, okay, there are probably only 21 birds in the wild. But at the same time, I don't think it came to as a surprise to any of us. I don't recall feeling mm-hmm. surprised about, us, mm-hmm. about it. But, um,
2: but were you guys able to use that to step up the level of management?
1: It was difficult because um, there was a, a very botched um, a handling of a chick that led to its death right. in, uh, during 81, I believe. Mm-hmm. And this led to a suspension of the whole program for right. uh, a long time, at least a year. And I remember I got an audience through Glenn Olson, who's the vice president of Ottoman, um, I got an audience with uh, uh, the fellow who was the head of of secretary, he was the secretary of natural resources for California and he was the boss of Cal Fishing Game. And uh, I I got a brief audience with him because he had put things on hold and said we're not going to go forward because Mm -hmm. some people need to be fired. Mm -hmm. And I said, please don't hold the bird hostage to the mistakes of people, Mm -hmm. you know, the the longer times of wasting, you know, this is one bird. You know, they died, but you're going to lose the population if you don't get off the dime on this thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know that my words had any effect, but at least there was he was hearing from someone who was saying, you know, this is ridiculous. Uh, yeah. The reaction is the harmful thing, not yeah. the loss of the bird. Yeah. So uh, it did. The program did go ahead, but it. I'll tell you, it was really difficult to bring fishing game along because these people are appointees, citizen Appointees, they did not want to take a bunch of crap for a conduit decision. That's the last thing they want to endure. And they were dragged into this ongoing uh, uh, high uh, visibility uh, argument among groups, prominent groups, probably prominent contributors. And so uh, it was uncomfortable for them. But some of them came through. And so uh, we came out pretty well. Uh, I, I have to emphasize, we came through... To the public and our utterances as being very confident this is going to work no problem in this and that. but we were not that confident uh, you know so if, th- if things had gone wrong we would have really felt badly you know this could have been horrible yeah. but um, anyway it worked
2: where were you when uh, <clears throat> when AC nine was was trapped I mean
1: was- as I recall when AC9 was captured uh, the guys called me from the field Pete Bloom called me and uh, uh, it was, it was sort of anticlimactic because we, uh, cl- uh, you know, we had uh, fought such a war with uh, various elements, uh, landowners and so forth, who didn't want the bird captured on their property. Ottoman felt like, hey, we're going to lose a habitat if we bring in the last bird. And so they dragged their heels, the field people did, and kind of uh, didn't cooperate very much. But um, so it was one of these things, and uh, you go, Phew. I'm glad that's over. But... Um, Anyway, um, it was nice to put AC-9 back out. I didn't get to go to the release, but uh, AC-9 was uh, really, uh, I saw that bird in the egg.
2: Obviously, you know, an extremely difficult decision to, you know, decide to bring the last birds into captivity. Um, And you say, you know, like you played it off like, you knew what you're doing, but obviously you, know, you can't be 100% sure. And I mean, when did you reach that point where you're like, okay, this is
1: going to work? Um, in the mid-'80s, uh, before this, I think probably 1984. It had to be 84. Maybe it was early 85. It could be, let's say it was Valentine's Day. It's called the Valentine's Day Massacre. It's probably Valentine's Day, 1985, that Noel Snyder, and uh, Mike Wallace put together a document that a bunch of us signed saying, okay, it's now or never. we got to do it. we got to pull the plug. And about, as I recall, about 20 biologists uh, who had been associated with the Condor program one way or another, including uh, many members of the recovery team, uh, signed this document. And it was uh, just a, kind of an open letter to the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service saying, bring them all in. And I was on a panel of the American Ornithologist Union at the same time. And so we met on this, there were five of us. And Bob Richlips was on that panel, uh, Dean Amadon, Stan Temple, and uh, Gordon Oriens and I. And so we agreed. We were deliberating during that period. We agreed that all the birds should come in except, in our case, we said leave two out. We can probably afford two, and that will squelch this whole argument about if you take them all in, you can't save the habitat. The agencies will abandon the habitat overnight because they get pressure from developers and so forth. And so, um, uh, and uh, it infuriated Noel Snyder, he never got over the fact that we wanted to leave two birds out. And in retrospect, um, it would have been better not to take that position. And I ended up taking the position, you know, to bring them all in. But but um, and the fact that we brought them all in, uh, uh, especially. AC-9, uh, you know, he was one of the early breeders leading that produced birds that went out. And so every bird is critical. Mm-hmm. And we were aware of that by then. You know, we, we almost knew all these birds by name. And so uh, this was... Um, I think it was in 85 because remember I mentioned that uh, in the winter of 84 and 85 we lost so many birds the bottom fell out Mm -hmm. and uh, we still don't know why we lost all those birds they could have been from lead poisoning but you never know Uh, the radios were gone from a lot of them Mm -hmm. and so you know we're not sure.
2: Yeah, I mean there's that interim period where between 87 and 92 when they were extinct from the wild. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, was there a, At what point in, in that period did you, uh, I mean, how did you come to the decision, okay, let's start releasing them? Uh,
1: this wasn't all that easy. Uh, we had in the recovery plan and in our uh, projections that the birds would be released quite a bit later than when we did release them. Uh, the birds first bred in captivity successfully in 1988 at San Diego Zoo, one bird. But then they breeding stepped right up and it looked like, uh, hey, this is gonna work and we were confident that it would continue. And I was particularly adamant about it because my feeling, uh, when I was uh, sort of the team leader and the, and the spokesman for the program, it's my feeling that we had to come to the public via New York Times, L.A. Times, CNN, whatever, with some good news every six months. The public did not want to hear another disaster about the program. They were sick and tired by then of hearing bad news about the environment. And so we wanted to show that, uh, the program in a positive light, if we could be honest about doing that. And so I wanted to get the releases going as early as possible to get the victory out there because even the attempted that an attempt even if it didn't work attempted releases would represent some good news to the public that we'd made progress and so um, there was some resistance on the recovery team on that but during the 7 years i was team leader we had i think 23 meetings during that period and every single recommendation we sent to the regional director who was the person we advised um was by uh, was unanimous it was by consensus, and I'm very proud of that. And our team was because we just agreed to get along. And we, at the same time, I always told people, uh, if we already agree on everything starting the meeting, why don't we just go to the bar and <laughs> sit it out <laughs> and go home? There's no point in the meeting if you don't have different ideas. And let's throw everything on the table, every objections to everything we take for granted that you can think of, and then come up with something, uh, a brief sentence recommendation that we can send on up to the regional director. But uh, we had a remarkably nice bunch of people, and uh, so they got along. It was absolutely critical to get the releases underway. There is no way, this is 2011, there is no way we could have sustained this program at at a sufficient financial level if we didn't have releases, if we didn't have birds out there. It's simply impossible. So you have to constantly be aware of the political climate mm-hmm. and the the real possibilities. How much can the public endure? Right. Sure. And if the Fish and Wildlife Service lost the Endangered Species Act and should pull out of the Condor Program, I think the Condor would still be in jeopardy because uh, I can't see how this thing can be done completely with private funding. Yeah. But the private sector stepped up, of course, mm-hmm. and especially the Peregrine Fund. It's remarkable what the Peregrine Fund has done in terms of fundraising mm-hmm. for this bird. But um, I don't think that could have happened unless we had birds out in the wild.
2: Of course. But what level of understanding of the, the, the threat of lead poisoning did you have before you started re-releasing birds in the 90s?
1: Uh, there was um, Patuxent Wildlife Refuge, had the responsibility for the condor program when Sandy Wilbur was a condor biologist and, and when Fred Sibley was, you know, back in the 60s and in the 70s. And they were already on top of this lead thing in the, the mid-70s and knowing that could be a possibility. And I've seen reports coming out in the annual reports of Patuxent. and he said, well, you know, they brought in a bird that, uh, you know, that had a pretty high lead level. And, you know, this is associated with the uh, mortality in eagles, you know, better keep an eye on this. And they had so few condor carcasses that were recovered that it was really hard to get a big picture of it. And then uh, Noel Snyder uh, was interested in this and uh, perhaps worked off those early reports or reports of lead poisoning in birds elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, he predicted, you know, that there would be lead poisoning, but so did Sandy, after all, before... Noel. And so sure enough, uh, you know, there was a death of the first released bird. Uh, I'm sorry, the first radioed bird died of blood poisoning. So in the 80s, there were three birds that probably died of lead. They all had high lead levels. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think one at least had high copper levels too. And copper is not uh, totally benign at certain levels. Mm -hmm. But uh, we assume that these birds died of lead poisoning. But the frequency has been much greater in recent years. Now, part of this Rest on the fact that it's just like the human situation. Uh, It seems like more people die of diabetes and of cancer and Alzheimer's now than did in the 1800s. Well, proportionally more do die because we got rid of a bunch of other competing diseases. We got rid of smallpox, typhoid, all these kinds of things. And so uh, if you eliminate several of the causes, the remaining ones are, are going to surge Numerically. And I think to some extent we see that phenomenon because we're not losing as many condors from shooting. Right. No, we went over to, uh, you know, our t- recovery team made the recommendation to do the releases in the grand, you know, near the Grand Canyon. And Robert Mesta was the condor um, coordinator for the Festival Molly Service, a wonderful person. And he, I think he told me he went to 59 public scopings. About that in Arizona, with uh, Native American groups, with county commissioners, with public meetings, 59, and in many of these he was cast out and threatened bodily. But the uh, it was very um, very ironic that uh, we went over there with uh, uh, got an Arizona Game at Fish plane. Uh, to survey for the potential release areas. And this was Jim Wiley and Noel Snyder, who was no longer with the program, and uh, he was a friend of ours, and Mike Wallace. And uh, Mike especially was important because he, uh, out of all the people in the recovery team, he had a really tremendous amount of field experience with condors of all kinds. And so uh, I recall standing there in Marble Canyon uh, at the... uh, uh, the place there, the the motel where everyone has lunch, and standing there in the airstrip and said, well, this is where we're gonna save the condor. We did a funny thing that day. Uh, Noel was along, and Noel had a very bad reputation with the Fish and Wildlife Service. They had fired him in 85, and so he was very much disliked by the upper people. So we snuck him into this trip anyway, because we felt like, hey, this is partly Noel's idea, and the big sense is very much his idea, although the rest of us had thought of it too. And so he came along, but when we did the group picture by the plane, we had him put a bag over his head <laughs> with this eye hold. <laughs> so this is fun. Oh <laughs> uh, Yeah, we did. He later, uh, later on, Noel sent me a picture uh, from the latter ranch where uh, he had gone uh in new mexico mm-hmm. to see about if we, that was a good place to release contracts so he sent a picture another bag every day. noel schneider uh main contribution to the program in my opinion was his steadfast support for captive breeding and just he was dogged about it and those of us who were in his camp were also dogged about it and we, we fed off his strength and um I often said back then, if we save the Condors because of Noel, but all of us were out there, you know, doing the fight. Um, Noel uh, is not very good at uh, some social things. And especially um, he didn't get along with his supervisors. And so uh, he had to go. It wasn't working out. And he, he uh, couldn't work with the Ottoman people. And there was a deep schism there. And the Ottoman people were emphasizing what they were supposed to emphasize, which was habitat protection and following the movements of the birds mm-hmm. and relating the bird, the condor, to its habitat. Mm-hmm. And so uh, these things should not have been um, contradictory or competitive at all. And I think they weren't particularly with the Ottoman people that they, of course, they subscribed to captive breeding yeah. too as an approach. Yeah. But uh, Noel ended up being pretty divisive. And uh, also, his situation within the Federal Wildlife Service was was pretty tough. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, to his to his great credit, Newell kept publishing on the Condor, and he published uh, quite a bit of stuff from um, uh, the field program after he left.
2: Mm-hmm. But do you remember seeing the uh, mm-hmm. seeing the site that that would become the future? Like release really site,
1: and I mean, what uh, we picked the, the site in general, um, the Vermilion Cliffs. That was what we did when we went over there. with Mike Wallace and Jim Wiley and, and Noel Snyder. Mm-hmm. So we picked, and it was really Mike that said this is it because we, out of the group, Mike had had the most knowledge mm-hmm. uh, pertinent to that mm-hmm. decision. Um, I did not see the specific site until I went down to the actual release.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you think that area of Arizona? Grand Canyon region in general is historic condor range?
1: I, oh, absolutely. Uh, the Grand Canyon is a historic, historical condor range. It is, um, you know, we had eggshell fragments out of a, a nest site there in feathers uh, that Steve emsley collected, and right, um, but
2: those are it 's uh, just a temporal place to see the
1: same same bird, just a temporal subspecies there 's no taxonomist that thinks it 's a different species
2: Oh no, no, no. Uh, uh, I would not argue that but mm-hmm. um, uh, what
1: you mean in uh, uh, prehistory? you 're talking about in recent years uh, no I, I think the records are probably bogus and um, I wrote the Federal Register part of this uh, to um, achieve the 10-J thing, Mm -hmm. uh, designation for the released population. And so I I delved into uh, the taxonomist view and the the paleontologist view and found that there was a consensus among all the leading people of their time that Geminidif's Amplus, which is the name applied to the Pleistocene form, uh, was just a continuum into the present bird. It was a bit larger, but um, they're, they're intermediate birds and so forth and so on. Um, that bird clearly nested in a number of caves in, in Northern Arizona. So there's no question about the bird being there. There are three historical sightings of the birds. And uh, two of them are second hand, as I recall. And the other one was by a noted collector who was probably pretty solid. But if they were valid, they were probably anomalous because there was, just, there was so much ornithological activity in Arizona that if the bird had been there from 1850 on, you know, it would have been prominently figured in all the accounts. And uh, the account of Elliot Cowles, for example, was probably my hero, like the greatest American ornithologist of the 19th century. Um, his account was that uh, one of their hunters had, had collected a bird with uh, wings as uh, wing spread as long as two rifle barrels. Well, you know, that's fairly in- imprecise. You know, what, what does that mean exactly? Whose rifle? What kind of rifle? You know, how long was the barrel type yeah. of thing? And so you can't rest the thing on that. So what I did when I wrote the Federal Scoping, and I will admit this on camera, is that I simply... Quoted Noel Snyder as saying that the birds had been there in <laughs> historical times.
2: <laughs> uh, that's great. I that. So I mean, that, that, like that to me um, is one of the one of the more fascinating aspects of the program in Arizona, because you have paleontological consensus mm-hmm. that the birds were not there from uh, post-Pleistocene mm-hmm. extinctions through.
1: Um, the most recent in 1920 mm, or something like that. I mean, yeah, thing, through, you know, you know maybe mm-hmm. and
2: like, you know, there's sort of debate over yeah. whether or not those sightings are legitimate. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if they were legitimate, they were probably, you know, uh, 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 exploratory flights from from California population. Mm-hmm. Or possibly even range expansion as a result of sure. introduction of, you know, uh, domestic.
1: Yeah, in the early you know. 1800s. But that's the sightings didn't come from that period.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh,
2: so, I, I mean, but I mean, to me, that makes the program more fascinating. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to remember the name of the famous paleontologist uh, who was always pushing the idea of rewilding.
1: Uh, Paul Martin.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Paul Martin in his book cites the Arizona population mm-hmm. as an example of rewilding.
1: Yeah, I, he interviewed me for that book.
2: Oh, and, did yeah, yeah. Oh, okay.
1: and I talked to him several times on the phone about that and uh, it was his original idea but he he got the counter details from me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, it, it's an interesting deal. I uh, I think they are not there because of the historical accident. Uh, They weren't there, let's Mm -hmm. say. Now, it's interesting. uh, In a a paper I did in 2000, uh, I pointed out that there were equivalent uh, nebulous sightings from Utah, Nevada, Alberta, Mm -hmm. Idaho Mm -hmm. during the same period, and we don't accept those. But it was convenient to accept them for the Condor release. (laughs) (laughs) But I would release Condors anywhere I think they could make it. Yeah. You know, and I gave a talk on Condors, California Condors, one time in Ecuador. And the kids at the, the Catolica the university there, and the kids at, one of the kids asked me at the end of the, the talk, they said, uh, where would you recommend releasing condors? I said, well, looking around, I think Ecuador would be a good place. <laughs> of course, Andean condors have not have a, had a perfect life there. But uh, uh, what I'm saying is that uh, uh, when it comes to, uh, I'm not totally bound up in um, historical precedent, uh, at least it's equivocal when you bring in previous, you know, Pleistocene situations versus the president, because Paul Martin believes in the Never kill hypothesis it originated with him, I think, and that uh, you know probably a combination of climate or climate change and the effects of Aboriginal peoples as they waved over North America, wiped out the big megafauna and along with it, uh, the large scavengers. The fact that the California condor survived was probably a product of the fact that they could live on marine mammals, and also that they could live on smaller items, mm-hmm. and probably the uh, the uh, surviving herds of ungulates were sufficient for them. Mm-hmm. And they had predators to help them out, mm-hmm. mountain lions and grizzlies and so forth. Mm-hmm. But they weren't; they're not to be classified with territories and things like that right. that were really, uh, you know, the poster children of uh, the Pleistocene. Right. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think, I think Paul Martin's uh, ideas are brilliant. I actually met him in 65. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, we were on our way to collect birds in uh, Sonora, southern Sonora, okay. and we stopped in Arizona and, and met him.
2: Let's talk about
1: lead poisoning. One of the things that concerns me about lead poisoning in general of animals is that we don't want know what the lethal levels are. Right. And I suspect that uh, they're highly variable depending on the condition of the animal. And also something that concerns me is uh, the long-term effects of uh, yeah. less than lethal mm-hmm. doses. Mm-hmm. Does it affect the bird's behavior? Does it make them less fit breeders, for example? And we need to get a handle on that.
2: How do you feel about the, the way that uh, the Center for Biological Diversity has approached the issue by I, filing I, the lawsuit? Uh, I,
1: I think the Center for Biological Diversity on, uh, on balance is pretty harmful to conservation efforts across the board. I, it's hard for me to think of something positive for animals and plants that they have done. Uh, they're, they're professional litigators. That's what they do. And they... Uh, If they can't sue, uh, their program is washed up. They don't do anything else. And so, uh, I mean, they don't, I'm sure they have on their books that they do other things in their their propaganda, but no one ever sees it, uh, you know, in in real terms. And so uh, I feel very strongly, uh, and so did our recovery team, that uh, banning the use of lead ammunition uh, through the wall uh, Actually, almost works against the condor. It certainly doesn't. Probably doesn't reduce the incidence of lead use, because many of the people who are using lead don't even hear of these laws or don't even are aware of them. And it's certainly, they're unenforceable. Uh, anyone who thinks not, have them take a look at the the ratio between game wardens in California and the number of people in California and the overall trend. And they, it's imp- and the aerial extent of their their. Uh, their beats, mm-hmm. what they have to cover. It's mm-hmm. utterly impossible. Fishing game was against the ban in California, not because they thought people should use lead in the range of the California condor. It's because they knew it was unenforceable. And you, it's bad practice to have unenforceable laws on the boat yeah. because it erodes uh, respect for the government and our community yeah. uh, among the people. And so this is, um, it, but it's also potentially deleterious if you provoke fringe groups. Right or wing nuts out there, you got mad because who says I can't use the lead? Yeah. And certainly the NRA stepped right up and, and taken the bait. Mm-hmm. And They're not advocating shooting condors, but you know the crazies, they're not affiliated, mm-hmm. uh, may, well, you may well have some action in that area. Mm-hmm. I, where we were coming from on the recovery team, and our recovery team has been much criticized because we didn't make a bigger deal in the recovery plan or recommendations about lead. We did not want the focus to be on condors, and I think it was um, Noel and his group and the CBD and all these people made a, an egregious error by focusing all this on condors. How do you think this plays to someone in my native state of West Virginia to go to them and say, you can't use lead ammunition any longer because of the California condor? They would say something that I can't repeat here, and they do. And this is preposterous. Why are we focusing on the condor with this? this we said time and again, it should be a hu- solved on the basis of human health. Mm-hmm. This is a human health issue. It's a universal issue mm-hmm. for vertebrates. Mm-hmm. And so why the poor condor? Why is the condor having to be out in front mm-hmm. on this thing? And if not eagles, you know, why can't we use golden eagles? Yeah. And that would have a broader appeal to yeah. many people. Yeah. And certainly not the, the old you know, shoot them to see them fall group. But uh, the general public would get behind a ban or ban on lead use or manufacture much faster if golden eagles Mm -hmm. were out there, or bald eagles certainly. So there is a thing in the recovery plan about the number of condors that we needed to achieve in populations before... Um, downlisting could be considered. Mm -hmm. Our language as a recovery team was that we need to have 150 birds in three disjunct populations, one being the captive population with at least 15 breeding pairs in each one before downlisting could be considered. The recovery plan as it came out said downlisting will occur at that point. Our original Assumption and one of the things where we were wrong, uh, or we just didn't see the future properly, was we thought that captive breeding would be done at the maximum potential, mm-hmm. and it's been, it's been held back for years because yeah. of the little lead problem, yeah. and that is, uh, didn't really expect that, and so. Like, how do you feel
2: about that? Cause that you know, I don't I, like it. <laughs> I don't like it either. I mean, No,
1: I don't accept it. But at the same time, I have to be realistic and look at uh, the guys in the field and all the field groups and okay, just what are people capable of handling. What we really need to do, and Tom Cade and I have discussed this many times, we need to wrap, and I know that uh, Bill Heinrich, our, our folks all feel this way, rapidly get to a point where we don't have to track each bird all the time. And just throw them out there and hope for the best. And If birds get in trouble, help them out. But uh, so that's the point we have to get to. But that's what's holding us back the That's the one key thing.
0: All right. That was our conversation with the former coordinator of the condor recovery team, Lloyd Kiff. I valued Lloyd's perspective on wildlife conservation issues for a long time. Although his interview didn't make it into my film, Scavenger Hunt, his perspective on condo recovery permeated throughout the project and had an important influence on how I developed the story. I have a deep respect for the important conservation work that Lloyd has been a part of over his long career, and I'm honored to be able to share this interview with our audience today. If you'd like to learn more about what Lloyd talked about in this interview, the first thing that you can do is watch my film, Scavenger Hunt, uh, if you haven't already. I'll include the link to watch the full film on the show notes page for this episode. Um, in addition, I will also include a few other relevant links, uh, sort of summarizing Lloyd's role in condo recovery efforts. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org EOC76. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by the Humidors.